Welcome to the Farcast, coming to you every week with insiders and experts to give you insight into the changing economic world. And now, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. We have a terrific Farcast lined up for you this week. Uh, we have our great friend Dan Mahaffey. Uh, from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, who's going to be talking about impeachment, who's going to be talking about what happened in Pensacola. Also, of course, China, always China, uh, until not, but it does look like these trade negotiations are going to go on for a long time. Uh, we, we, we're probably going to get through a week here without discussing Brexit. And then, from the bank credit analyst, BCA, the chief economist, Martin Barnes, one of the greatest minds, I think, on Wall Street, if you're an institutional investor, you probably read the BCA report. Uh, it's, it's basically must reading uh, for institutional investors. Uh, and then a quick discussion of what we're seeing coming into year end here in markets. Uh, and and it's, uh, it certainly has been a terrific year, up 25% for the S&P 500, just terrific. Before we get to that, however, Please remember that on the forecast, we believe, first of all, that money is hard to make, that old-fashioned hard work, uh, research, discipline, and patience are the keys to successful investing. And finally, remember that emotion is your foe at every turn. If uh, you're beginning to feel fearful or ebullient, stop uh, and make sure that your decisions are made dispassionately and solidly based in fact. Remember what the Fed says. They're data dependent. Uh, I think investors should be too data dependent. So uh, as we come into year end here, up 25%, earnings gains are only up about 1%. So Mr. Farr, how do you get from 1% in earnings gains? And Farr, you uh, have said for a long time that earnings are the mother's milk of stocks. Uh, and indeed, uh, earnings growth uh, uh, is, the most, uh, uh, is the most significant indicator of stock price performance over time. That's uh, a line from Peter Lynch, by the way, that earnings growth is, is the most significant uh, indicator of stock price performance over time. If earnings are only up 1%, how, did it, how are we up 25%? And the answer, with the drum roll here, is people decided that they were going to pay more. They are paying more. We saw the price to earnings multiple expand. So instead of, uh, we're, and, and they decided they were going to pay 25% more right now for a dollar per share in earnings than they were willing to pay a year uh, or last January. Uh, a year ago, it was actually a lot lower because we were coming into that December 24th low. Uh, December 24th last year actually marked a full 20% decline on the S&P 500, which really does count as a little mini bear market. And I say mini bear because it, it didn't live very long. Federal Reserve uh, came out uh, this week, and the Federal Reserve left rates unchanged. They said that they were going to likely leave rates unchanged well into the uh, beginning of the new year. Well, now, ladies and gentlemen, that's a wonderful thing, I think, uh, if the Federal Reserve is somewhat sanguine. But when they say kind of into the beginning of next year, this is an election year, folks. That means all year. The Federal Reserve, unless their hair is on fire, unless there is some crisis, the Federal Reserve will not do anything in an election year. They don't want to be seen as influencing, influencing politics and the outcomes of the presidential election at all. They're going to be on the sideline. Uh, 
One of the things that I found interesting about that meeting uh, is that the consensus, when you look through the uh, projections of the individual Fed voters, it looks that the consensus calls for Fed funds to remain stable through the entire 2020 at 1.6%. And then when you look at 2021, committee members in aggregate see perhaps one rate increase, one, in the next two years. In the next two years, the Federal Reserve, and through their polling, says maybe one fate, uh, Fed uh, rate increase, and that would take Fed funds to 1.9%. So, and, and when you look at the, they have this thing where they each put a dot on terms of where they think rates will be and where rates should be, and media refers to it as the dot plot because we're just not that creative. Uh, there's almost no deviation. It's a huge uh, consensus. So the Fed wants to portray itself as solidly in lockstep that rates are appropriately set for the year ahead. That's great news for stocks. No surprise coming there from the Fed. They're going to remain very accommodative. And they're you know, probably biased to ease if measured inflation remains below their goal, which, you know, uh, it, it will, we, we, shall, we shall see. As you look at your portfolio coming into year end, now based on what I just told you, if you think about what I've just said, stock prices are up 25%. They're at 17 and a half times earnings. Historically, that's okay. It's not completely cheap. It's not particularly expensive. It's towards the higher range of normal, if you will. So 17 and a half times earnings. Uh, what's going to take them higher? Earnings are only up 1%. Earnings growth is forecast to be very modest, say 4%, maybe 5% if you're really a bull. But could we see stocks go up 4% uh, this coming year? Yes, we could see a 4% gain. Could it get reached to 10%? Sure, it could reach to 10%. When will it? And, 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 and so there's something funny that Wall Street does. After about August, when Wall Street starts looking at earnings, they start looking at the next year's earnings. They, start, they will start looking at 2020, 2021 estimates kind of in July and September. And those are forecasted most of the time to be higher. When I tell you that the earnings, the price to earnings multiple right now is 17 and a half, that's on 2020 earnings. Uh, we're just, I mean, that's, those, that's the earnings number we're going to care about. That's the prospective earnings number. Um, uh, so people project forward. Typically, the earnings numbers are higher, are higher, and indeed, the earnings forecast for next year are higher. So uh, it, it might be, what I'm suggesting is that the way we look at the P.E. multiple might be a little bit bullish or a little bit rosy. Could we see stocks a full 10% higher next year? Yes, we could. Uh, can I come up with a basis for that on 4% earnings? Yeah, you get 4% earnings and the other six percentage points is going to come from multiple expansion and, uh, you know, uh, some sort of happiness that the world hasn't exploded uh, and that some whatever presidential choice the voters in America make isn't going to ruin us for the ensuing four years. If those two things happen, then we could have a 10% year. Now, there's a lot of ifs there. If nothing dramatic happens in the world with trade talks and Iraq and everything else going on, don't forget Brexit. It ain't over yet, folks. Uh, we have a North American Free Trade Agreement, uh, Redux, uh, that uh, looks like it's gone through here, the USMCA. Uh, that looks like it's going to go through. So there are green shoots. It looks fine. 
If your equity position has increased by 25% this year, then it's probably a good time to take a look at your allocation and say, I shouldn't have that much money in stocks. Follow your discipline. Reduce your stock position. Be cautious about your capital gains and get yourself back to your asset allocation that you have decided, uh, I hope along with your financial uh, advisors and professionals, uh, that you have decided best works for you and is going to meet your long-term goals. But do not get overly comfy just because stock prices have gone up 25% and you say, gee, this feels pretty good. Don't worry about how it feels. That's the beginning of my message every time on the forecast. Don't worry about how it feels. And by the way, if it feels good, you're probably in most danger. Most danger is the feel good. I tell investors, forget everything you learned in the 1970s. In the 1970s, we had the, it was awful. I'm, it was a shameful period uh, to be uh, alive through the 1970s, and I was a teenager in the 1970s. Teenager in the uh, 1970s, um, uh, we had the dawn of the happy face, the smiley yellow happy face, and it was ubiquitous. The damn thing was everywhere. It was just awful. Some people thought it was so clever, this stupid happy face. They were everywhere. I'm, I'm not against being happy. I'm just against being trite. So uh, these things were everywhere. And the expression in the 70s, dude, was if it feels good, do it. If it feels good, do it. It was the post-1960s free love, and we had bell bottoms, and we had neckties that were about six inches wide at the bottom. Uh, lots of red, white, and blue because in seven 1976 was the bicentennial, and Jimmy Carter was in office. Oh, it was just an awful time to be alive. Anyway, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I am kidding largely there, please. For those of you who loved your time in the 70s, I, no more hate mail, please. Uh, so, uh, but if uh, the rule for investing, um, please, is if it feels bad, do it. If, uh, if you love your stock that is going absolutely wildly through the roof uh, and has gained 100% this year, you probably should consider selling some of it. And if you have one that has just ruined your year and that you hate and you think that the fundamentals are still reasonably valid uh, and the stock price is down 30%, that's not the one you sell. That's the one where you go and do your homework and say, geez, the balance sheet's fine, management's fine, this is all fine, it's run into this problem, but longer term, this is a solid company. That's why I bought it the first time. I'm going to buy the stuff when it's cheap. I'm going to sell the stuff when it's expensive. And both of those things feel awful. Well, I'm feeling better about uh, 2020 based on the Fed meeting, based on what we're seeing happening in Washington, at least with the USMCA deal. We're hearing that there are good things about China, uh, but um, uh, we are always hearing about that. We will wait and see. Uh, if there are. Coming up on the forecast in the next couple of weeks, my top 10 list for 2020, my top 10 stocks, and we're going to have our top 10 prognosticators and their views for 2020. When we come back, I'm going to talk to Martin Barnes from the BCA analyst, the senior economist there, and then Dan Mahaffey. We have a great forecast for you. Please stay with us. In Washington, I'm Michael Farr. This is Harry Jennings, producer for The Farcast. Thank you for listening. Michael welcomes guests every week to The Farcast to help uncover the trends that fly beneath the headlines that impact our world, the economy, and the investing environment. If you have a group or conference and would be interested in Michael presenting his assessment and forecast for the economy for the coming year, 
please give me a call at 202-530-5608 or email me at hjennings at farmiller.com. Michael has delivered the keynote address at the YPO Economic Summit, spoken at the Matheson Financial Advisors Conference, the Palm Beach Chamber of Commerce, and a wide range of other venues. We are booking now for dates in 2020. I'd be happy to talk to you about your audience and potential dates. And now, back to the forecast. Thank you for joining us on the forecast. And now, back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the forecast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. Uh, terrific forecast going here in our discussions of what's going on in markets so far this year. Up 25% on the S&P 500. Almost, almost no one I knew uh, predicted that, if you think back to January. Dan Mahaffey explaining exactly what happens next with impeachment. And as jo Justice, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts comes in and will be seated in the Senate to actually uh, conduct the impeachment hearing and trial uh, is going to be uh, probably good television, but not much result, according to Mahaffey. Uh, taking a look at what's happening in USMCA, terrific discussions there. Now, what a great treat and a great honor to have my friend Martin Barnes, uh, chief economist from BCA Research. The bank credit analyst is one of the must-reads if you are an institutional investor managing billions of dollars. The one thing you have to read is the bank credit analyst. It's one, it's one of the smartest things, uh, most thoughtful pieces of commentary on the economy, and it's been that way for years. Uh, he was, uh, Martin w uh, is the uh, chief economist uh, there, uh, author of The Ultimate uh, uh, Investor, uh, Dan LeBaron, featured Martin as one of the people that make modern investment. Uh, prior to VCA, he was 10 years as chief international economist with Wood McKenzie, one of the top UK firms, uh, just one of the smartest guys. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, one of the nicest, most charming guys. You'll hear that as we talk to him today. Hey, Martin, welcome back to the Farcast. Well, Thank you, Michael. Yeah, I'm slightly um, and blushing here with those uh, commendations. Not quite accurate, but fake news I can live with. Well, it's uh, I, I, it's written down here for me by Harry Jennings, so it's got to be true, Martin. It's just got to be. I can't say, for all of the things I now doubt in my world and in my life, Harry Jennings can't ever be one of them. <laughs> but uh, so. Uh, Martin, uh, the economy doesn't seem awful, and the Fed is meeting, and we're going to hear from them tomorrow. Tell us what you think of the economy as we come here to the year end and here in the U.S. What do you think is going on globally, and what's the Fed going to tell us tomorrow? Well, it is quite a remarkable economy, isn't it? I mean, it's broken all the records in terms of its, uh, the longevity of this expansion that uh, has gone on longer than anybody might reasonably have expected. Um, look, it's a strange economy. Um, it's a little bit schizophrenic, if you like, or two-sided. The consumer sector, which is obviously a really important sector, is, is in fine shape. As we all know, the labor market is incredibly strong. We've got uh, historic lows in the unemployment rate. Wages are growing at around a sort of three-ish percent pace, which is above inflation. Consumer confidence is, is pretty high, and consumer spending has been continuing to grow at the sort of two, two-ish percent, right. two to three percent right. rate. So that's fine. 
So if all you cared about was the consumer, you would think things are great. Yes. When you get to corporate boardrooms, it's a rather different perspective. And why is that? Well, okay, if you were a corporate, if you were the CEO of a major corporation right now and you know, every day you're reading the papers and watching the news and you've got the politi political uncertainty within the U.S. in terms of the election and taxes, the implications for taxes, depending on what happens next November. You've got the trade war issue ongoing. You've got um, global economic environment is not great. Uh, Europe's almost in recession. China's slowed down a lot. Um, would you think that this is a great time for you to be expanding your operations, building that new factory, taking big risks? Right. I don't think so. Right. And even though, so you had a nice corporate tax cut, you know, in 2018, but in fact, capital spending from the corporate sector has actually slowed since that tax cut. It hasn't picked up. So the, the hopes that this tax cut would lead to a kind of resurgence of animal spirits in the corporate sector has not happened because it's... A very uncertain world. Well, what so, are they doing with all that extra money, Martin? I mean, they're not sending it into the government in terms of taxes, and profits are, are showing some. Certainly, there was a big jump last year in profits without uh, having to send that tax money in. Uh, it looks like it's still on the books again for this year. What are they doing with the money? Well, the stock market's telling you what they're doing with the money. It's, a lot of it is going into share buybacks, um, some M&A activity going on, and you could argue that that's all misaligned incentives, that corporate executives that are on some sort of share bonus option schemes have an incentive to push up the share price. So um, they're doing that with it, or they're sitting on, on, on cash, but they're certainly not splurging on capital spending. And that's a problem for the long run, because one of the big issues for the long run health of the economy is getting productivity up. And if companies are not investing in the future, that does not bode well for future productivity growth. What would, why, what would encourage them to uh, invest for productivity growth? I mean, uh, typically you're going to say that they're going to behave in their own economic best interest. Why isn't it in their economic best interest? And I'm presuming that it's not or otherwise they'd be doing it. Uh, why isn't it their economic best interest to be investing for greater productivity right now? Well, I mean, we're living in a world generally of, of short-termism, aren't we? I mean, people look for short-term fixes rather than long-term. So if you, in the short run, can push up your share price through, through buybacks and you happen to have a nice option scheme, that's kind of an attractive thing to do. Whereas investing for something that might have a five, ten-year payoff um, is perhaps less attractive. But look, I mean... I don't want to suggest that all corporate CEOs are, have that attitude, but we need to reduce uncertainty uh, in the outlook, and we need to see some sort of calming down of this trade situation, um, some clarity on what's going to happen in the next election with regard to taxes. It sounds like um, all of those steps, Martin, are incumbent upon government. Well, yeah. I mean... The uncertainty that we have at the moment is very much coming from from politics. Yeah. Certainly the trade the trade stuff, but that's a big deal for large companies. Although I would look, I would point out that there is quite a difference between the attitudes of big companies and little companies. 
I mean, we do have a monthly survey of small businesses done yes. by the National Federation of Independent Business. Yep. Um, these companies are quite happy. I mean, we, we saw an incredible spike in their confidence, their optimism when Trump got elected. They love uh, the, po the economic policies of the administration in terms of rolling back regulations. They like the tax cuts. So the small business sector is actually reasonably happy. It's the bigger corporations, which are obviously much more dependent on global economic conditions, on trade. They're the ones that uh, are holding back at the moment. So for them to feel happier, we do really need to see some uh, clarity and improvement in the, in the trade situation. So Martin, as you as you uh, you know survey the landscape and you say that things are seem to be okay in the U.S. economy and the expansion and the world concerns, what worries you? Uh, I mean, you don't sound entirely sanguine about where we were, but, or, well, but I don't sound, doesn't sound like your hair's I on mean, fire I either. Look, I mean, <laughs> you know, economists have been pretty dismal in in predicting recessions in the past. You know, I I've, I've looked at this and I looked at the Fed's forecast. That, that they made around the time that the economy was actually just about to head into recession. And they've missed every single recession in the last 50, 60 years. <laughs> Not because the Fed is stupid, and they are certainly no worse, they were probably better than, than most other sort of economic forecasters. But the economists haven't had a great track record of forecasting these things. So the fact that there's no risk, there doesn't seem to be much risk of a near term recession. You well, know, well, and okay, Mark, Mark, you've been doing this. A long time. Why, yeah. why, why do you think economists are so bad at, at, at seeing recessions? <laughs> um, well, to paraphrase the, the Forrest Gump movie, I won't use the exact expletive, but stuff happens. You know, um, <laughs> uh, 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 unforeseen things. Um, you know, there's a lot of moving parts, and there's a great tendency with uh, forecasting is to extrapolate the past, and it's hard to... to predict turning points. Um, okay. It's not because people are stupid or anything. I mean, they give it their best shot, you know. But look, I mean, I, I don't foresee a recession in the next year. Okay. Um, you know, policy is, is stimulative. Interest rates are incredibly low. You know, we're running these huge deficits. There's no sort of fiscal constraints on the economy. There's no actual major imbalances that, that were are evident that we're aware of that might warn of problems like we had the with all the bad mortgages that we had in 2007. There's right. nothing of that uh, front. So um, unless we see some horrible policy policy mistake, you know that we go ahead with more tariffs and retaliation and it just kind of spirals out of control. Assuming that's avoided. Or we don't get some geopolitical event that causes oil prices to go to $200 a barrel. I don't expect those things. But if we don't have anything like that, then economy should be capable of growing at around a 2% pace, which is where it's been growing recently. And that's its steady state. It's really hard, by the way, for the economy to accelerate a lot here. Um, as we all know, it's a very... Um, elderly cycle, um, like like us all as we get older, it gets harder to run fast. But you know, there's just no capacity in the economy to to really boom here on the labour side. Company's biggest problem is finding enough skilled people. 
to hire. Right. And that, that's a real constraint on how fast the economy can grow at this point. And, and so, yet but if it keeps growing at 2%, that's great. It's great. Because you don't want it to boom. You don't want it to boom. If you get a boom, let's say you know, the administration managed to force feed the economy with more tax cuts and managed to get economic growth up to a 3 to 4% growth rate. Right. That would not be a good thing <laughs> because no, no, no. you yeah. would almost certainly get inflation yes. at that point. Well, so maybe this, uh, you know, maybe this high employment is going to drive wages and that'll help grow some organic growth. Martin, last week I had uh, on the forecast Dr. Jay Bryson, the chief economist now for Wells Fargo, and I was asking, mm-hmm. I was sharing with him my concern about this growing deficit. Um, at a, at a trillion dollar clip and he told me not to worry about it too much that it wasn't <laughs> he did and he said no I, we don't yeah, no, fair enough. he says don't don't worry about it it's not going to be a very big problem um, I mean you know wait for a number of years and maybe we'll have to get concerned about it and that leaves me scratching my head should I not be worried about this deficit at a trillion dollars a year and, oh, <laughs> by the way I think they just passed another three quarters of a trillion on defense spending that everybody was just yeah. thought that was a fabulous idea too okay. nobody's going to tell me how to pay for it so here's the thing about federal deficits I mean yeah you can worry about it a lot of people are worried about it I mean it doesn't sub- somehow seem right, does it, you know, no. to be running trillion-dollar deficits when the economy is in good shape. But don't expect the government to do anything about it because to do something about it would require po- uh, unpopular actions. You have to raise taxes or cut spending, deal with entitlements. No politician wants to do that, especially going into an election year. But let's not so, go there. I right, mean, they, I understand they, all that. But no, why, politicians why, love deficits. Polit- Let me finish. Politicians like running deficits, yeah. so they're not going to deal with it. The voters are not going to – they may worry about it in an abstract sense, but they're the beneficiaries of the low taxes and the government spending. So they're not going to really vote for fiscal austerity. There's only one – group of people who constrain governments when it comes to deficits. One set of policemen, and that set of policemen are the financial markets, the bond investors. And at the moment, that group of policemen are in the donut shop drinking coffee. <laughs> they, they, are, they don't care about the deficit. You've got 10-year treasury yields below 2%. They know how big the deficit is. They've seen the CBO projections showing the debt's going to reach 100% of GDP in the years to come. They know all this stuff, and they don't care. Now, the question is, when will they care? At some point, they will. And what you really need to see is either inflation picking up or some decline in private sector savings that gives more competition for the deficit. Because at the moment, there's obviously enough money sloshing around out there that we can fund this deficit without putting any pressure on the markets. Um, If that were to change, if the corporate sector was to go on a capital spending binge, for example, or consumers decided to run down their savings yes. rate, because yes. at the moment they've run it up a lot, yes. then you would see the whole savings investment balance become a bit more tricky. You know, But that's not happening. Inflation's low. Fed's going to keep short rates 
flat over the next year for sure. It's not going to raise rates in an election year. Um, so I don't see the deficit being a problem yet. But at some point it will. And that's going to be hard to predict. You know, the way these things work is that one day the markets will decide they don't like it anymore. And it will never be obvious, even with hindsight, what caused them to change their mind. You know, they like it one day and then they don't like it the next. But it's hard to see a problem in the next year as long as the Fed is going to anchor short rates at, you know, yes. at current levels. Yes. And the economy is not going to boom, you know. Right. So, okay, but so yeah, it, it, it's, it's unusual and it's concerning for the long run. You know, so this, for all that the economy looks okay right now, there's lots of long-run issues out there. Demographics, which we've talked about before, um, is a huge problem. Weak productivity growth and high debt. I would say those three things make me quite concerned about the long-run outlook. But short-term, we're okay. Really affect, but, well, we're bumbling along. It's not booming, but, you know, it's probably good enough to keep the market up. I have two final questions because we're out of time, and I can't thank you enough for being on. And my uh, two final questions um, are, and I'm giving them to you, and you can answer them in either order. Uh, one, uh, do you think we'll learn anything from uh, Jay Powell in his press conference tomorrow afternoon, number one? And number two, if you were a cop anywhere in this country, would you have the courage to eat a donut in public? I mean, could, do you think you could endure the, endure the ridicule of actually being a cop in a donut shop? Those are my two final uh, questions for the, for the great Martin Barnes. You know, I don't think you'll, you'll learn anything from power that you don't already know. They're, they've changed their position you know, on inflation concerns, they're happy to keep rates low, let the unemployment rate go down further if necessary. Um, and for all that the Fed likes to assert its independence from political pressures, uh, there's no way that I don't think the Fed wants to subject itself to to a tweet uh, avalanche from the president. You know, so they'll they'll keep rates flat over the next year and. He won't say anything to dissuade us from that view. Okay, perfect. Uh, and uh, the the donut question, Martin. Don't don't think you're ah, going to get away with absolutely. that. The donut question. You would do it. You sure, would. You would very eat tasty the, little devils. Stand, you got to eat them. <laughs> stand. If you see, uh, if you see a uh, a lanky. Uh, a lanky, uh, a handsome man in uniform down in Naples, Florida, uh, in a donut shop with a bit of a, a bit of a brogue. Um, go and introduce yourself to Martin Barnes, ladies and gentlemen. Martin Barnes from the BCA Analyst. Thank you so much, Martin, for being with us. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us again on the Farcast. Season 3, here we are another week. We'll be back next week. We're going to have the top 10 in stocks. We're going to have our top 10 analysts and economists. Martin Barnes is one of them. Wait until you hear what they think about 2020. Thanks for joining us this week on the Farcast. I'm Harry Jennings, producer for the show. We also bring you a daily podcast, the Farcast 3-Minute Morning Brief. You get a summary of markets, headlines, commodities, and futures before the opening bell. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Radio Public before 8 a.m. each day the U.S. markets are open. The Farcast 3-Minute Morning Brief. And now, back to Michael Farr and the Farcast. 
Welcome back to the Farcast, and now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again. Uh, hope segment one was helpful to you as we talked about stocks and what's going on as we come into the last three weeks of 2019 here in the third season of the Farcast. The Fed is meeting today. And we're going to hear from the Fed chairman tomorrow. That could move markets. We're expecting him to say he's going to sit on the sidelines. The Fed's going to be quiet. Uh, the poll out of CNBC and my friend Steve Leisman today said that the uh, great expectation is that we will, uh, Pip, be sitting on the sidelines until June, at least, for the Fed. I think that could last a lot longer, uh, particularly if these unemployment numbers uh, continue to be robust. The Fed actually may end up having to raise as their next move if the economy is indeed turned. We will find out all about that. We will be watching it minute by minute, and we'll be discussing it with you on the Farcast. Now, the great Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress and senior political analyst here on the Farcast, one of the smartest guys we know, lots of qualifications, which I read every week, but I'm not going to this week because I don't want to waste the time. I want to get right to uh, Dan Mahaffey. Uh, welcome, Dan. Okay, here we go. Uh, as we look forward, Dan, uh, and past week, we've got the uh, Congress and the House who are actually drafting uh, articles of impeachment mm -hmm. for President Donald Trump. Um, I don't know what that means. It also looks like they're trying to get the USMCA deal out. Um, that means that there will be a Senate trial, and uh, we're facing new tariffs coming mm -hmm. up on December 15th, and I want to talk about Pensacola. So start where you like, Dan. Okay, I think let's take a look at impeachment because we now actually have those. We have the two charges going forward, the abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. Uh, Congress has clearly gone fast and narrow uh, on these impeachment charges. And I think it's interesting to see how that strategy is paying off. They, they did want to move quickly. They, they repeated that. Um, I think the poll numbers, though, are starting to get a little shakier on impeachment. And for me, my question would be, where do they think they've been successful in communicating this to the American people compared to how Republicans have stayed on message? And where I really look at the Democrats' effort, that hearing they had last week with the uh, series of law professors, the more we've looked at that, there was very little in the way of a presentation that I think would appeal to the average American uh, in these hearings. So it'll be interesting to see as it goes to the Senate uh, they're going to move on this. President Trump will be the fourth U.S. president to be impeached by the House of Representatives. I have no doubt about that. But nothing yet changes my assessment that there's not enough to get him removed from office. They're taking this narrow sort of, we've got, we've, we're only going to complain about or, or file on two separate issues here. Does that make any sense to you? Do you think this is a decent strategy? I get their strategy in that, one, they want to move quickly because they don't want to wait for the courts, which they would have to if they were expanding it to some of these other charges to get other officials to testify. Uh, I don't think they, uh, they, they don't want to wait around uh, to have this before the election. They've made that clear. Uh, at the same time, though, uh, these hearings, though, got so much into the, while compelling for someone who watched, were so much more about what was going on in Ukraine and the details of that, and I think the, the details of the president's behavior have gotten lost uh, in, this, in this quick move. 
And also, I think a lot of the American people have become, uh, in, a, in a way, uh, Trump's behavior has become normalized for them. They don't see the president's behavior as uh, something un that unusual and, and perhaps agree with Republicans who say, why not let, uh, let us decide in November of 2020? So what I'm hearing you say is that it might be a decent strategy, but in general, the Democrats haven't, haven't sold this thing worth a damn to the American people. And if anything, their pursuit of it is just starting to piss people off. Well, I think they, they did do their darndest to sell it, but they, they sold it to a country where I think the only people who don't have an opinion about Donald Trump one way or another are in a coma. Yeah. And, and they're not, and, and the people of opinions uh, on, on Donald Trump don't seem to be, you know, sort of uh, lukewarm on them. Um, Correct. They they seem to be very. And and he, he and he understands that that polarization plays to his benefit. Okay. So uh, this is going nowhere, is what you're telling me. Well, it's going to the Senate. Which what does a trial do? John Roberts as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. John has Roberts, to come. well, yeah, he'll come. He'll preside over it. We're going to see. It's going to be very interesting because he's going to have to learn how to do the. Uh, you know, follow the rules that are set by the Senate. This isn't a standard uh, judicial trial or uh, procedure by any stretch of the imagination. So uh, if you recall the Clinton impeachment, we always had that footage of Rehnquist with his uh, Gilbert and Sullivan uh, gold stripes on his robe. And But all the times there were these sort of these awkward pauses as the chief justice of the Supreme Court has to wait for instruction from the Senate parliamentarian on, on how to proceed. So it's going to be uh, interesting pageantry, interesting television. Okay, important question here. Does Roberts show up in fancy robes to this <laughs> or not? Oh, well, he's demurred away from that. We've seen him go the, the well, old style. Well, I know he has, but he hasn't done the full-on Senate impeachment trial. I mean, he could dress up pretty for a Senate impeachment trial. Well, you know, maybe this is time for him to, you know. Pull to, out the Rehnquist robe. Yeah, pull out the, pull out the old-fashioned uh, Rehnquist look. So, ladies and gentlemen, when you live here in Washington, uh, it's, uh, it, it is a large town, but you bump into the people who live here with you. And over the years, I've gotten to know a number of the justices, and I got to know Chief Justice Rehnquist. He was a very nice man. He was a very quiet man. He kept his own counsel. Uh, in many ways, he was shy, but we had a great mutual friend uh, named Vince Burke. Vincent C. Burke, Jr. was one of the greatest men I've ever known. Uh, passed away, I guess, five or six years ago, and was a real blow not only to me and many of his friends and family, but I think to the city of Washington, was just a wonderful man. And he was good friends with the chief, and he used to refer to the chief's impish humor, uh, the chief justice's impish humor, and I was at a luncheon one day and I sat next to Vince, who was sitting next to the chief justice, and whereas the Chief Justice normally sat stony-faced stony and didn't look like he was there inviting conversation, they leaned in shoulder to shoulder and were laughing and giggling. And I watched Chief Justice Rehnquist sit and giggle all the way through lunch <laughs> with Vince Burke. It was one of the coolest things. On occasion, you get to see these people as humans. I will also tell you that I know uh, Chief Justice Roberts. I have known him for years. One of the finest, nicest gentlemen I've ever had the occasion to encounter. I look forward to seeing him. He's always friendly, thoughtful, kind, um, just, ju just, a, just a good guy. Don't, uh, not, you don't need to judge everybody on their politics or on their anything. Uh, this is, this, these are just nice people, and it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure when I get to run into some of these folks. And a great privilege to meet so many great people who will, uh, you know, live on in, in, in American history books, you know, forever, I guess. So, Dan, uh, this doesn't go anywhere mm -hmm. uh, on impeachment, so let's circle back to the other work of government, 
Yep. Uh, we have a USMCA deal, this new NAFTA, North America uh, Free Trade Agreement, or whatever the hell we're going to call it, with Mexico, Canada, and the U.S. Looks like we're getting it done, yes? Mm -hmm. It does. It looks like we're going to get it done. We've had the, the deal was announced uh, in Mexico City uh, that we're also going to have agreement, the AFL, the CIO, the Democrats, they're all on board. Uh, we're moving ahead with this. They're going to have some hearings. I think they even try and waive some of the hearings to, to move it along quickly. Uh, if not uh, signed, sealed, and delivered by the end of the year, you know, very early in January, uh, this is this will be set. Um, you know, I think it's interesting though. We saw that you saw that the uh, the defense authorization bills went through as yes, well. Yes, that was huge, yes. wasn't it? So we're getting the that was a big number for the defense authorization bills. Correct. Totally approved. It was like three quarters of a trillion dollars. Correct. Is that right? And really, yeah. We're, and it's emphasizing, look, that be it trade among North America, uh, our defense posture, Washington on both sides of the aisle is realizing this changed geopolitical environment. We're what back, does that mean? We're back in an era of great power competition. It's, it's not so much Iraq, Afghanistan, Al-Qaeda, and ISIS. It's Russia, China, Iran, North Korea. Those are the countries you have to be worried about, the peers and the rogues. Uh, at the same time, uh, North America as a trading block, you have to remember the, the importance of North America as a trading block when you consider that uh, when we're in competition with China or even in Europe where we tend to be in, in economic cooperation and competition at the same time, that binding together North America as a trade block is strategically and economically important for all of us. Okay, so this is something that just has to get done but uh, for the USMCA. But can we go back to that like three quarters of a billion dollar, trillion dollar uh, mm -hmm. defense? Nobody made any mention of how in the hell we're going to pay for it. We've got trillion dollar deficits now, and everybody just went skipping hand in hand down the lemonade lane to say, mm -hmm. oh, good. Let's come up with another three quarters of a trill for good old times. Why do you hate the troops? <laughs> oh, dear. God. But no, that's the that's the, the sentiment on this on both sides of the aisles that you, we're going to open it up on defense because, frankly, there's there's no choice on some of these matters. If you look at how the force has been hollowed out from the two wars, from sequestration, uh, we've got to do this on the defense side. They decided once again to kick the can down the road when it comes to the deficit side. One of the great, uh, I guess, uh, and I don't know if it's true, but one of the great victories of Ronald Reagan over communism was achieved, many believe, uh, at Reagan's uh, just flat out outspending, trying to outspend uh, the Soviets. Uh, and he did it shamelessly, he did it openly, and he did it purposefully to get them into an arms race that they couldn't afford, and it ultimately broke them, and that the financial breaking of the Soviet Union was really the fall of communism, is what many mm -hmm. Uh, posit. Do you agree with that? Oh, I agree with that. I think it, it, it weighed on many of the, uh, you know, the economic system of the Soviet Union could not support that kind of defense expenditure. Um, you know, the, the gap in technology was also significant, uh, combined with, you know, and, and not just because it's Golden Globe season and it got nominated, the Chernobyl disaster and the cost of that and the impact that had on the Soviet Union was, was on an, a, a massive scale for their economy. And we still don't know uh, exactly how much they spent cleaning that up. My son Robert had me watch that Chernobyl thing. I watched all of it. It, it was a little creepy. Um, it wasn't bad. I didn't think it was as fabulous as he did, but it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't bad, but it was definitely kind of creepy. So finally, um, 
uh, we had a terrorist attack in Pensacola at the Naval Air Station there. We are out of time, Dan. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. It was perpetrated by a 21-year-old Saudi, and there were reports that there were three other Saudis present filming this, I don't, I don't know what you call it, videoing it, I can't yeah. say filming anymore, videoing the thing, I'm sorry, I'm old, uh, on their cell phones as he was shooting yeah. people. What does that mean? And well, why in the hell are we training these people who are going to come and shoot us while we're freaking training them? I mean, do, how stupid do you have to be? I mean, at least wait till we train you, then you can shoot a lot more of us. You'll be better at that stuff. I mean, this is just moronic. I don't understand, but it's really pissing me off. Well, I... I get that. And I think certainly what we see is there was a, a major failure in the vetting program of these Saudis. Uh, I don't think, though, we should distract from the countless other uh, foreign partners who do train alongside and work alongside our military without incident. Uh, but clearly there was a failure in the process of determining whether this person had been radicalized during a visit back to Saudi Arabia. Um, and questions will continue to abound, though, you know, specifically given the tension that we've had. Why is it so quiet? Why is the government not saying anything? Why hasn't the president come out in outrage? I mean, why are we just getting the silent treatment here? I mean, I'm back to Khashoggi. I mean, how did that get all swept under the carpet as quickly as it did? Who's getting what from whom? Why aren't we raising hell? Well, we're not raising hell because this administration and this president, uh, they seem to have a very interesting dynamic with the Saudis and what they're willing to say publicly about them. An interesting dynamic with the Saudis. Would you can would you uh, speculate? Well, I don't want to get I don't want to get into too much uh, speculation because uh, I don't want to use your podcast to <laughs> to to spout disinformation or, or anything no, like we that. We don't want that. But certainly, look, it's there's the Saudis have a lot of money. The president thinks in very mercantilistic uh, measures. He thinks very much about the price of oil. Uh, all of those things. Um, all fit together in a way that I think he just uh, he doesn't want to uh, to to really roil that relationship with the House of Saud. Got it. So we are walking carefully uh, among those who would commit acts of terrorism here in the United States. I and mind you, any other country in that region, and we probably would have expelled all of the uh, participants too. That's the that's the thing that I think about. With the embassies know. would be shut down. It would be a big brouhaha, and yeah. it would be. It would be awful. I know. Well, okay. We're going to have to watch this very, very closely. Um, you, you hope that the United States interests are being served and that our young men and women uh, who put their lives in harm's way to benefit all of us, to keep us all safe, are being protected and kept safe to the best uh, that leadership is able. So, well, and I know we're, we're running short, but on that note, too, I think as, as the week's unfolding, uh, another story that's being lost with impeachment, though, what the Washington Post is covering on the war in Afghanistan. Oh, yeah. And the, the documents, the interviews with all the people who, who, despite all we were hearing about the war turning the corner, you know, for all of us who, you know, know understood every, I think everyone could see that that conflict wasn't going anywhere in a positive direction. But, uh, you know, pretty damning. Uh, evidence of just how dysfunctional our approach to that war has been over the past uh, almost two decades. It reminds me of the unshaven, uh, unkempt, bleary-eyed Charlie Sheen after he'd been fired from his television program, uh, coming out in public and screaming, winning at mm -hmm. the cameras. Uh, hard to see how we've been winning much in the yeah. war. I'm feeling uh, unshaven and disheveled. Uh, uh, a, 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 an effective strategy there is long 
uh, is long overdue. And markets care about these things, ladies and gentlemen. They absolutely care about these things. The uh, threats uh, to this, uh, to, to our sovereign land, all of these things uh, matter. And economies are moving on these things. There's an Aramco stock offering that's uh, come forward. Uh, some folks, Mohammed El Arian, says it's a good deal for the long term. We will find out um, over time here. Uh, but, uh, you know, you can buy Saudi oil now and own it around the world. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we will have our pulse on what happens at the Fed meeting tomorrow. Uh, as this uh, impeachment trial begins in the Senate, once this uh, moves a bit forward, we will follow that for you. And as soon as we have the USMCA deal, uh, I think, uh, as you watch that, that's going to be good for the economy. Do be careful, though, that because sometimes once they become expected, they become priced in. So if you think that's something, a piece of news you could trade and buy ahead of it and, and, and profit, I would be careful about that. Uh, a lot of the time, these big news headlines that, that get to be expected uh, don't move prices very much when they uh, happen as expected. When we come back, Martin Barnes from the Bank Credit Analyst, one of the smartest guys, one of the longest-serving voices in economics on the world stage, is going to join us on the forecast to tell us what he sees going on in the economy, what he expects for 2020, and what the Fed's going to do tomorrow. We're going to get the big inside scoop when we come back on the forecast. Thank you for joining us this week on The Farcast, and thanks to Michael's guests Dan Mahaffey and Martin Barnes. We come to you every week with experts and insiders to help you gain a deeper understanding of the forces that impact the economy and the investing landscape. Please subscribe and share with a friend. Over the holiday season, The Farcast is producing two special shows for you, a best-of Farcast guest with their thoughts on 2020 and Michael's top 10 stock picks for the year. Farcast is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at farcast at farmiller.com. Let us know what you liked, what questions you have, and what topics you'd like to hear in coming weeks. We would like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and it should not be considered legal or financial advice. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell. And please be aware that past performance is not a guide to the future performance of any index, fund, manager, or strategy. Before you make any investment decision, we strongly recommend you consult with a financial professional to determine what may be best for your individual needs and your goals. And if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to us at hjennings at farmiller.com, and I'll be happy to put you in touch with one of our investment professionals. Go beyond the headlines with the Farcast, Wall Street, Washington, and the world.